This is the Action Network Podcast. That's when you have fun. When you're kicking somebody's ass and they're sucking for win. That was good. Ready? Go. Inbounder on the baseline. Foul. And a steal! Last chance to dead! Way outside. Welcome to the Action Network podcast presented by FanDuel. This is our March Madness Bracket Guide. I am your host, Mike Calabrese, and I am joined by the Action Network's Director of Research, Evan Abrams, for a discussion about everything March Madness. I have to say, right from the jump, when I saw this data dump, the amount of information, this treasure trove of potential upsets or against-the-spread performance, all of it in one place— it really harkened me back to my childhood when I used to have to comb through those Sports Illustrated and ESPN anthologies. <laughs> I mean, these things these things were absolute bricks. And to go through year by year, oh, when was the last time that a favorite actually won the championship? How often does a 12 seed beat a five seed? To have it all in one place, even before we get into this conversation, to see the raw data was so exciting to me. Is it something that's, you know, really moves the needle for you just to go through some of these data projects to find these Easter eggs and present them to our audience? First of all, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy March Madness. I, I mean, to be honest with you, it's a table setter that needs to be done, at least from my point of view, like weeks in advance. Because once we get to yesterday and today and conference championship week, I don't want to do that stuff. Like that stuff should already be done so that we can use it as like, if I need to reference something, if, you know, every 10 is favored over a seven or, you know, things of that nature, it's just easy things to refer back to. And it helps like, you know, when you have this many people covering the sport, like we do, and we have live shows and podcasts, just all try to get it under the same window. Yeah, just going through this, it's it's interesting, like you said, to get your homework done ahead of time so that you can shoot from the hip, but responsibly when filling out your bracket. And a note before we get started, all of this data that you pulled, it all tracks back to 1978. Why 1978? Why not 1985? 1978 was the first year that the NCAA tournament was played with actual seeds attached to the teams. So it's important in terms of referencing our data that will be going all the way back to 78. But in general, the modern tournaments, when you think about those 12-5 upsets and the numbers really being meaningful on a yearly basis, that kind of goes back to 1985. So when you look through this, was there anything before we get into specifics that were a little bit more generational? where this happened in the 80s and 90s, or this is a, a new you know, um, phenomenon that seems to be bubbling to the surface. 11. It's the 11 seed. I mean, recently, I think you know, since the 2000s or so, even late 2010 area, it's been the 11 seed. I think they're over 500 potentially. I have it in my article on actionnetwork.com that has like all the trends kind of laid out, but that never used to really be the case. Like the 12 over five is also relatively a new modern thing, which I think everyone's kind of caught on. But I, I think like uh, it might've been, yeah, I think it was you who mentioned this as well. Like the 13, 14, when you take each of those on the money lines and things of that nature, I just think the tournament, especially this year, when we're going to talk about Houston, who's only plus 550, we're just not used to that price as like a favorite entering the tournament. It's usually you've got your three to ones, your four to one, someone who's like really good. And we've been saying it all year, the team just not there. 
Yeah, it's interesting on Selection Sunday, one of the very last games to come down to the wire was the AAC title game. Houston, they've been carrying the banner as the number one team, at least by Vegas power ratings, just about for the entire season. They go down by, I want to say, double digits to Memphis, and the national reaction was, yep, that's this season. It's absolutely insane at this point, which brings us to one of the, the first buckets of data that you went through, which is, can you look to any particular conference, the AAC, you know, being on the outside of that power six, it, is that a hindrance to a team like Houston or playing from, you know, a power conference like the Big 12 where you battle tested? When you go through the overall performances by conference, what are some things that jump out to you? And I'll say this through the lens of What's always jumped out to me is when any time Bill Walton says the conference of champions. Well, not since 1997, Bill. That's the last time a Pac-12 team cut down the nets as a national champion. I was going to say, yeah, uh, the stat that I love that I kind of use as a table setter and, you know, things are great when they continue right until someone wins it and then the trend ends. But at the current moment, Arizona won that won the national title back in 1997. No team has won the championship west of Texas since then. So your UCLA's, your Gonzaga's, anyone you can think of on the west side of the of the United States hasn't won the title in a long time. So I mean, it's a little bit weird. You try to look at a map and say to yourself, okay, how many teams actually fall west of that? But when you do think about your Arizona's and your Pac-12 and things of that nature, it, it is interesting. The one thing you will see everywhere, Mike, and I know I went to Indiana as a person of the Big Ten. I know this as well. Big Ten hasn't won the title since 2000, which every year you hear it is like, how is that possible? Mateen Cleaves, Tom Izzo, that was the last time that conference uh, won the title. And then you start to look at even the SEC, 2012 Kentucky. And you think about those teams who have been at the top with the Auburns and the Tennessees. It hasn't happened in a long time. Uh, and uh, I think from an ATS perspective, and it's been talked about really all day. And I actually think it's actually funny. Most of us will look at the matchups this year and probably prefer the Mountain West. But they're 3-11 and against the spread in the dance since 2016. So some crazy stuff. Yeah, it's it's difficult to get excited about those West Coast teams or the teams in the Rockies region just because of how difficult it's been for them to string wins together. I don't know if there's so much that you can put into where the, some of these venues are selected. You look at the travel and it's not just for the teams, but it's also for the fan bases where you can you know start to rack up those thousand mile trips pretty quickly. And the tournament committee tries their best to balance it out with the, you know, the first and second round venues. But when you look at the map, you can go onto Wikipedia and see where those you know thumbtacks are put. Most of them are east of the Mississippi. So it is interesting in terms of travel, not just for the teams and coaches, but also for the fans. All right, let's get into something else in terms of how rare champions are to come from outside of that quote-unquote elite fraternity. So it's not just the Blue Bloods. It's on a yearly basis. You generally think to yourself, you know, those one, two, and three seeds, they're all priced, you know, 20 to one or shorter. Is the winner going to come out of there? Or am I going to be able to cash in on a UConn dream run when they hit for 100 to one? Or, you know, some of these teams, North Carolina almost cut down the nets last year, had a halftime lead in the title game. They came out of nowhere. So how rare is it actually for one of these programs to win from way back in the pack? So I think you'll always start with the unicorn. You'll, you'll, you'll start with the one team who kind of you know, went against the grain and did it all. And that was UConn in 2014. They were a hundred to one entering the tournament and they are the only triple digit C uh, triple digit uh, future odds to win it all. So they're kind of your unicorn. And then moving beyond UConn 20 to one or higher has only happened four times. 
So that's the 2014 UConn team, the 2011 UConn team. And then you've got to go all the way back to Nova in 85 and NC State in 83. Those are the only four times that it's happened at 21 to higher and higher. So I, I think that's interesting. But again, even if you dip it down a little bit, we've had four, 44 NCAA tournament champions since that 1978 date. Only nine entered the tournament 15 to one or higher. So about 20%. It's interesting, too, you get into how rare it is for one of those pre-tournament favorites to get knocked out in the first weekends. You know, if you're traveling in the Midwest and you say Ali Farouk Manesh, that'll bring out strong emotions one way or the other if you're talking to a sports fan. So how often do those teams actually get booted? Because this year, the buzz is palpable. The top teams are vulnerable. There's no super team. So is there an actual chance for a team to lose before getting out of the first weekend? And if so, how rare would that be in historical you know, perspective? In a blanket statement, the last pre-tournament <clears throat> favorites to lose in the first weekend since 1990 were Kansas in 2010. So again, it's been 12, 13 years since we had that happen. So we've, even though we've seen those Virginias and things like that go down, that real team at the top tends to advance through. So 2010 Kansas, 2004 Kentucky, and then you've got to, got to go all the way back to 94 UNC. So really only twice in the last you know, 20, 30 years. You spoke earlier about Houston and how it relates to their futures odds, which essentially I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I want to say they opened in that 10 to 11 to one range. And I just slowly ticked down, but basically hit a wall at six to one, never got any lower than that on the season. Is that typical or is that something where usually you have to pay a premium to get a, a team that has been number one for the majority of the season? They're both top 10 in offensive and defensive efficiency. Generally, you have to overpay for that, right? Usually, and let's just hone in on that. It's really six to one plus five fifty number. It was six to one earlier this morning, and it's funny. It actually moved to five fifty as the bracket was getting announced, kind of giving it a little bit of tax up. But it's interesting. Forty-five tournaments since nineteen seventy-eight. The pre-tournament favorite has been six to one or lower only ten times. So basically, plus six hundred was nineteen ninety-four UNC. Aside from that, plus five fifty has only happened three times. Houston this year, Nova in 2018, and UNC in 2017. So like I said, we always tend to see that plus 300, that plus 400, that team that kind of raises above them all when, and was a guaranteed one seed. This year, I think we were debating the four one seeds really up into uh, the uh, selection. Earlier, I kind of wanted to tease out the idea that modern college basketball, by opening up, has opened up to the Cinderella. So let's zoom out, not necessarily from a national championship perspective, but winning four games is a huge accomplishment. It can change your school's profile. Just ask Loyola Chicago. How rare is it for a team that is really lucratively priced out in the market to make the Final Four? How often is that happening, and have you seen an uptick in, let's say, the last 15 years? It's insane, Mike. And I'll just start here. When I went back and started to look at the future odds for all of these teams dating back 80s, 70s, things of that nature, the Texas Southerns, like the teams who now you would see as the 15, 16 seed only opened at 200 to one, 250 to one, 301 to win the tournament. Now you're looking at, you know, 2000 to one, 3000 to one. So, you know, based off of the legalization of betting, I, I think we've seen a large tick in actually the odds of these teams in the tournament. So when you look at since 2000, nine teams have made the final four at odds of 125 or higher, which is actually pretty frequent. 
Loyola Chicago is 380 to one. VCU, 300 to one. South Carolina in 2017, 280 to one. So the George Masons, even, and I think this might be the crazier part. You've even seen it from the Carolinas and the UCLA's. Like even the Blue Bloods have found their way to have those high odds and make it to the final four. So opportunity ripe. And again, the rollover, right? Maybe even higher for some of those teams. Yeah, the rollover is interesting. It's a point that Stucky brings up a lot on our Big Bets on Campus podcast, where try to just you know figure out the back of the napkin math, because in some cases, just rolling over those winnings into the next money line and having an opportunity without a hedge to, to pull out of a run at any point, that can be more lucrative and give you more flexibility. So just a, another you know gambling tool that you should have in your toolbox as you you know put together not just your bracket, but also your individual plays for teams to potentially get to the second weekend, get to the final four. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Speaking of long shots, how do underdogs perform in general? Because I think there's a a tendency at this time of year, the publicity goes to the upset. The publicity goes to the Cinderella that's making the run. But do they actually cash out at the window? Or is there a certain point in the tournament where these Cinderella's go to die, even from and against the spread perspective? What did you find through that research? The one other tip I'll give as well, if you're going to put like a really big long shot in, Split the tickets, especially at these books that allow you to get some cash outs and stuff like that. If you're going to put $50 on a future, you know, 30, 20 it, and you might find yourself in an opportunity as well. So that, that's one thing as well. Uh, but let's just talk about underdogs, as you said. As a whole, they've actually been above 500 in seven of the last NCAA tournaments, seven of the last eight NCAA tournaments, including the last five straight, just strictly, blindly betting underdogs. Uh, And in the last eight tournaments, underdogs actually have a small edge with a cover rate just under 53%. So there is an edge. It is small, but each of those tournaments have all shown a profit. And I don't think that's really shocking, right? I I mean, each time we go into these, I tend to think that the lines kind of get bet down. And I I kind of think that the bigger favorites tend to become smaller in these areas as teams tend to uh, pluck out underdogs. And the one note I will add in the last five tournaments, the most profitable round for dogs, Sweet 16 and round of 64. So we tend to see the dogs come through in the round of 64 and then kind of die out in the round of 32. Uh, we we do th- we see that most years. Yeah, that, that was one piece of information, just looking at the raw data that you provided that really popped out to me because you have the emotional elements, almost kind of resetting yourself. Can you you know get beyond this idea of, we just had one of the biggest wins in program history. Now we have to get back up for another team that's, also probably going to be higher seated if we're coming from the back of the pack. And, you know, at this point as well, looking at the Sweet 16, you get that four to five day break. You get to travel. In some cases, you go home. You get to reset, you know, emotionally. I know it's something that's a little bit mushy and a little bit difficult to quantify, but I do think from a human nature perspective that it does actually make sense. So when looking at the Sweet 16, I I think I'll kind of recalibrate my expectations there. Speaking of coaches and kind of, you know, trying to guide these 19, 20, 21 year olds through the emotional roller coaster. For some of them, these head coaches are doing it for the very first time. And at the college football level, 
I am very adamant about backing coaches that are battle tested, that I've seen how they're going to play call. I've seen how they handle clock management in the last two minutes of halves, all these different elements of situational football. I want to see how they handle the pressure. College basketball is a little bit different. I do know that, you know, March Madness can become a half court grind, a lot of reviews, a lot of stoppages. So there's an opportunity if you're a really good coach from an X's and O's perspective to kind of flex a little bit and give your team a little bit of a boost. But in general, my outsider expertise on this is that so many teams, it's more of a philosophy. It's more of a motion offense. It's more of a always be running or let's focus on this as opposed to I'm a pure tactician. So with all that being said, how have first-year coaches performed in the tournament? Is there anything that you can circle as either a plus or a minus? And the one thing I will say, which I do think you said, and I agree with, and it's true, is like there's almost three seasons when you're a coach, especially early on. It's the regular season, it's the conference tournament, and it's the NCAA tournament. And I think there's different styles in all three of those different seasons. So I think without having that NCAA tournament experience, you can have your St. Peter's and things like that happen sometimes. But again, since 1985, only five Elite Eight appearances for coaches in their first D1 season. Uh, and we saw it with Hubert, Hubert Davis last year. But after that, it's 2002. So it really just doesn't happen. And I think that's one thing to look at, especially when you have to, you know, you can win a, a game. You can win two games. But I think after you get uh, really the preparation that's needed to win those second and third tier games, that's when you see most of these teams die off. What's interesting at this time of year is that everyone gets so laser focused on the seed. You know, this is a four seed as opposed to a six seed, as opposed to a 10 seed. When in reality, I think a lot of people would be surprised to find out in terms of the advanced metrics and also the AP and coaches polls. Sometimes those teams that are on different lines may only be three or four, you know, numbers away in an AP poll. So from a ranked versus unranked perspective, if you just zoom out and look at it there, as college football does all the time, as so many other college sports do, they really focus on the national ranking versus unranked. Is there any correlation between performance on that level? There definitely is. And I, I think it works the way it tends to work sometimes in college football. And it's funny when you open up the action app, you, you have and you look at the matchups one by one by one for the NCAA tournament. On the left-hand side, you have the ranking, the AP rank versus the seed rank. And it's funny to see a lot of those teams in like really tight spread games because the public tends to like those teams. So if you look over the last decade, ranked teams are hitting just 43% against the spread of the NCAA tournament versus unranked opponents. A $100 better would be down almost two grand in that span. So I think over a large sample size, again, the public tends to beef up some of those ranked teams, some of those teams that might have a number next to them that might be looking better uh, and they don't really cover. <laughs> All right. We've got into a lot of the seeding, a lot of the national ranking, how it relates to futures odds, but let's go off the board here. What's something that you've noticed from a statistical deep dive perspective that you've mined out that maybe you want to keep a little bit close to your best, but you're going to go ahead and share with our audience because it is profitable. What's a trend that popped out to you? So let's just look at it as a blanket point of view first, and then we'll kind of hone in. The blanket point of view is first half unders tend to be a profitable trend in March Madness. Overall, now listen, you're going to have your higher numbers, your lower numbers, and it's going to go up and down based off day. But overall, teams tend to be a little bit colder early on, tend to find their steam, and you tend to find second half overs. But like I said, if you hone in using our bet lab system, which you can go online and check it all out since 2011, March Madness games at tip before 2 p.m. Eastern that have a first half total under 70. 
66% to the under, an ROI of 25%. So really, what's that telling you? Early games, low total games, already kind of predicting that type of nature, and those games tend to go under as well. I'm not sure if you've attended March Madness in person, but I've you know made it to everywhere from the first rounds all the way through the regionals. Have not attended the final four in person. But what I can tell you is that particularly early on in that round of 64, when you get there for the first game, there may be a game at 12 and three and then a break. Sometimes there's a late arriving crowd. And I think there is an element to we're on the biggest stage in college sports. You know, we for some of the, the underdog teams, those 12 through 16 seats, this is their moment. They've lived their whole life for and it's at 40% capacity for a noon tip-off. I absolutely have to believe that it plays into a little bit of the energy. And you can see it as well when an, uh, a crowd doesn't necessarily have a, a rooting interest. All of a sudden, they'll just start going for the underdog because, hey, it's March Madness. It's fun. And you can see that energy, that juice get uh, you know shot into a team. I saw it last year. I was at the regional in Philadelphia when St. Pete's won in the Sweet 16. And basically, once they were in it in the second half, the audience was like, OK, we, we just have to back the Peacocks here. So it can be interesting from a timing perspective when to go ahead and fade a hot start as opposed to you know looking for a lot of points right off the bat. The interesting thing about that as well as the stadiums, like where they're actually playing, a lot of research should be done there because some of these places don't house college basketball games all the time or depending on, you know, the format. It just those are things I like to look into as well based off of uh, just where the total is in the game. Speaking of St. Pete's, this one caught my eye. You pulled this from the Bet Labs database. After a team pulls off a double-digit point spread upset in the NCAA tournament, they are three and seventeen straight up and five and fifteen against the spread in the in the following rounds, dating back to 2015. Sometimes I, I do believe, as we mentioned before, that you you spend all that emotional capital. Is there anything else that you saw in that data in terms of their performance that broke down maybe to a first half play or a situational play? I do know that a lot of sports books are starting to offer the race to 10 bet and some of the, that micro betting options. Um, was there anything that you saw on, from that perspective? Well, two things I'll add is that trend pretty much matches up well with the first half as well. So those teams who tend to struggle in that game after the upset tend to struggle kind of overall throughout the game. It's just hard to get up again. And I'll add those teams were 0-9 straight up between 2005 and 2013. And then you had Florida Gulf Coast. But I think that is the thing that's interesting is Florida Gulf Coast, they're a blip on the radar. Like I, I think the trend actually is stronger than the blip. So I, I think finding those teams who do pull off those big upsets, especially the emotional ones for maybe schools haven't been to the tournament in a long time, I think it's tough to turn around in that amount of time. It's been a semi-recent development, the first four in the expansion to not only have the play-in for the 11 seeds, but also for the 16 seed. In some cases, it's been a launching pad for these 11 seeds and having that opportunity where if a team goes out early in one of the major conference tournaments the week before, they can go a week plus without playing. They're playing against a team that, yes, they may have to board a bus or get on a plane after winning in Dayton, but all of a sudden they have a little bit of wind in their sails. Was there anything from the first four that you saw that maybe you circle and gives you a little bit of a double clutch on your bracket before you put that six seed past the 11 that wins the play in? Yeah, so 23 of the 44 winners uh, from the first four were non-16 seeds. You might as well look at those so we can kind of take those 16 seeds out of the uh, the pack. What I want to look at is the nine of those 23 
that advanced and kind of try to figure out, is there anything of those teams that you could have gleaned in the past? And, and the two things I think that are kind of interesting, eight of nine had round of 64 games, which spreads under seven. So basically you turned around and won in the, in the first, in the first four, you got to the round of 64 and you just had tight spreads. And then of those tight spreads, people can throw RPI all they want around. It is interesting to the fact that eight of the nine were top 50 in RPI. The good team and the 11 seed who kind of overachieves and starts getting hot tends to make a run. Four 11 seeds, obviously, in this tournament. And of those four 11 seeds, top 50 RPI, that's Nevada. So if you're looking at that trend, I think that's probably one to look at if you think they can make a run. I also noticed some data you had on teams that end up winning the national championship. For the most part, they're not going through against the spread, losing streaks on their way to cutting down the nets. Um, is it something that potentially could be a warning flag? You have a lot of teams that are susceptible at the top. Kansas can struggle shooting from three-point range on the glass. Alabama nearly lost to Arkansas, to South Carolina. They've gone through a lot of off-court issues as well. So the question is, how are they going to handle the pressure of March Madness? You, go, you basically go down the entire list of the one seeds. Houston was in multiple dog fights with Memphis. They lost to Temple outright. So they put it on film that they can be beat by teams that are not exactly in the elite conversation headed into the tournament. So is there anything, a canary in the coal mine, so to speak, that we should keep an eye on for those top seeds if they're just squeaking by in the round of 64 and 32? I mean, the way I look at it is those tight wins by one seeds, two seeds, and three seeds, I tend to fade them in the round of 32. And it works long-term. That, that's exactly what you're looking for. You're looking for that team to lose by one, two, or three, and you tend to find some value as they're just not as good in that next round. Last question I'll have here for you from just a personal preference standpoint when filling out your bracket. Are you someone who likes a contrast of styles? As Stucky likes to say, styles make fights. And when it comes to college basketball, there are a few teams in this field of 68 that like to play slower. I'm looking at the, you know, Santa or UC Santa Barbara Gauchos. They like to play at a snail's pace and use their defense. Virginia, certainly under Tony Bennett at the higher level of basketball, likes to play that pack line defense and maximize the value of every single stop, as opposed to these Gonzaga teams that want to get into a track meet with you. Is that something that comes into play for you before you even start filling out the bracket just philosophically? Or do you like to look at it, at it, look at it as a clean slate every time that you fill out a bracket year, year over year? I think momentum uh, to me, momentum and offensive rebounding. I mean, everyone talks about their four factors or what type of you know, different stats that you look for. It's kind of the way I bet conference tournaments as well. Like I want really good defensive teams who offensive rebound well. It just gives me more chances. I, I mean, you've heard about the you know top 30 in offense and top 30 in defense. Those are like the only teams that can win it all. Like all, all sorts of different caveats. But to me, I always just look for more opportunities. Um, and, and the one thing I will say, and I agree with is, the high totals between high-paced teams and low-paced teams, I tend to bet unders. Uh, I, I tend to think that that style tends to ground down, especially in the tournament. We'll get you out of here on this one. Now that you have all this information at your fingertips, is it easier or harder to fill out your bracket? Because, you know, sometimes you have the ghost of previous mistakes, you know, rearing their head. And then finally, is there a team maybe outside of the top two seeds that you look at saying, they have the statistical profile, the DNA of a lot of teams that I've gone through. Uh, well, I'll start by saying this. The one, and I'm going to give you a Cinderella just because I gave it out earlier. I, I like Iona. 
Like I, I kind of just like the format that they run in. I like their pace. I like the team. And I, I think they do have a chance to kind of make a run. Now I liked UAB. That didn't work out for me. I thought Jelly was going to get in. It didn't work out. I think, but I think I own is good. And I think they can, uh, I think they're good. And I, I kind of like Arizona. Like I like them winning the Pac-12. I like them kind of getting over that hump. And I like the kind of, I like the path. And now again, people are going to say Utah State, but I think Arizona has a shot. Yeah, Arizona is certainly when they're playing their best basketball. I think that you can put them in that small elite group with teams like Alabama and Houston, where when it's really working for them offensively, it can feel like an insurmountable task to run past them. So I, I agree with that assessment. Creighton is one of those teams that you brought up uh, a little shout out to Ken Palm top 30 in offensive and defensive efficiency. They have a head coach who's never made a deep, deep run, even when he had Dougie buckets, you know, his son playing for him, but he's also a coach that hasn't flamed out all that early. That would probably be the last thing that I would bring up in our conversation is that I like to track the coaches just because over time, you can kind of get a monkey on your back out of getting out of the first round. And Shaka Smart has one of those on his back right now. He hasn't won a, a first round game in March Madness since 2013. So even though he's well positioned with Marquette, they really put it together on the offensive end. They're elite in that way. I think that's a consideration when it comes to coaches that not only have the confidence to instill in their players, but have the confidence in themselves to get out of that. Is that something that's overblown in your opinion? Or do you think there is something to be said for regular season conference tournament coaches and then a totally different breed that that coach who can wipe the slate clean and really go to work in March Madness. I do think there's a trend there. I mean, every year I say to myself, Rick Barnes is time. It's he's going to get over everything that's happened in the past. But if you look at this stat from Shaka, one in seven straight up, two and six against the spread in the NCAA tournament as a favorite or a dog of less than four points, which means you know, you're supposed to win the game or you're in a toss up and he's done a really bad job. So that stuff just really scares me, especially. And listen, I like Marquette. I, I like I, and every one of his teams seems to get there. And sometimes, you know, they do make a run, but usually usually he finds a way to get himself out of there. This has been the Action Network podcast presented by FanDuel for Evan Abrams. I'm Mike Calabrese of the Action Network. This has been our March Madness Bracket Guide. Hopefully all of these statistical nuggets we brought to the service can help you fill out your bracket. A reminder, all the picks, the analysis, the, you know, everything that gets tracked all through the Action Network app. And then when it comes to filling out your bracket and making bets on individual games in this year's tournament, Big Bets on Campus has you covered soup to nuts from the first four all the way through the national championship game. We're going to be throwing so much content at you in the next few weeks and certainly in the next few days. So be sure to update your podcast feeds because it's going to be coming fast and furious. Thanks so much for listening and best of luck at filling out your bracket. Action Network reminds you, please gamble responsibly. If you or someone you care about has a gambling problem, help is available 24-7 at 1-800-GAMBLER.